0: You ever feel like uh, everything that you know about God or maybe everything that you you think you know about God is all just uh, information? That you have all of this information about Him and stories about Him and teachings about Him, but at the end of the day, does it ever feel far from you? Like sometimes maybe it's in your mind more than it is actually in your heart. You ever felt that way? Have you ever struggled to feel the closeness of God? The tangible, palpable presence of God in your life? The reality of God living in you? Have you ever wondered at times if it's all true or not? Are the stories about Him actually true or are they just stories? Just old writings that don't really apply to us today. Because I'll tell you, I've I have felt that way at times in my life it's not a it's not an enjoyable place to be in fact it can be quite unsettling when the voice of the one that you've devoted your entire life to seems to fall silent when the close intimate fellowship that once sustained you now feels distant far removed from even your prayers when the reality of God working in your life and in your circumstances, and in your relationships seems like nothing more than a collection of memories, and you begin to wonder, was it even true, or was it all just wishful thinking? Maybe, Maybe I didn't really experience what I thought I did. Maybe it was all just emotion mixed in with good intentions and some really great stories. The fact is, I think there are a lot of us Christians who experience times in our lives like that, whether we want to admit it or not. I think we go through periods of time where God seems far from us, times when we may even doubt the reality of His presence in our lives at all. And the truth is, that's nothing new. It's certainly not unique to us today. In fact, as long as there have been people following God, there have also been people among them who at times in their lives have felt far from God because we don't always see his hand moving in our lives. We cannot always discern his voice, and the evidence of his working in our circumstances is not always obvious. However, that does not mean that his hand is not moving, or that his voice is not speaking, or that his will is not unfolding in our lives, because first of all, God is never idle. In John five seventeen, Jesus said, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Some translations say, My Father is always working, and so am I. And not only is He always working, but He is always working on our behalf. Romans 8, 28, Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Even though we don't always see or understand what he's doing, just as Jesus once explained to his disciples, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. John 13, 7. And listen, how often has that been the case in so many of our lives? When we're finally able to perceive the work of God only in retrospect, sometimes long after Our difficult circumstances have passed and you look back and only then you understand what he was doing during that time when he seemed so far from you. You see, when all is said and done, God is not far from us. Even when we cannot see his work or hear his voice or feel his presence, God is not far from us. King David once wrote, The Lord is near to all, who call on him, to all who call on him in truth, Psalm 145, 18, God is not far from us even when he seems an eternity away, which has never been more clearly demonstrated, by the way, than in our story today, as we begin a new sermon series working our way through the book of Esther, and and this story, this magnificent story stands in the annals of history as a clarion call to all who may ever doubt the presence and power and working of God to the satisfaction of His own will in our lives that He is always in fact working, that He is always in fact present, and that He will always accomplish His perfect plan for us even when He seems distant and silent. But there's even more to this book because not only is it full of uh, relevant and poignant lessons for us concerning the providential and sovereign albeit invisible hand of God working in our lives believe it or not Esther uh, the story of Esther is also very much a part of our own heritage Because if the forces that were conspiring against the Jews in this story had succeeded, the entirety of the Jewish people would have been wiped from the face of the earth, which means God's saving work through his people would have come to an end, which means no fulfillment of God's plan in and through Christ, and therefore no gospel and no Christian church. Nothing less was at stake here. If it wasn't for Esther, and of course specifically for God working in and through her, which she could not have understood at the time, particularly in the beginning of her story. If it wasn't for what God did for and through her, we wouldn't be having this discussion today. In fact, we wouldn't be having church today. If it wasn't for God's unseen hand working in ways that seemed an eternity away from the interest of his people at the time, as we'll see today. And so as we we read this book together, we should never lose sight of the magnitude of significance that these events hold, not just for the Jews, but for all of us who follow Christ today, okay? So let's turn there together to the book of Esther, chapter 1. We'll have it on the screen for you as well. And, And just some backstory here to set the scene. The Jews of Judah and Jerusalem were taken into exile by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar when he sacked the city and burned the temple in 586 BC, which you'll remember from our study through the book of Daniel, if you were here for that. And then later, in 539 BC, Cyrus II, or Cyrus the Great, conquered the Babylonian Empire, overthrowing King Belshazzar, a successor of Nebuchadnezzar, with spectacular military strategy that is described by the Greek historian Herodotus in about 450 BC. It's also mentioned in uh, Daniel chapter 5, but the account given by Herodotus is unbelievable. And then about 50 years or so before the time of Esther, Cyrus made a decree allowing the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild their temple using Persian resources to do so. And yet many of the Jews did not return to Jerusalem and instead remained in the land of their captivity, which uh, plays significantly into God's plan here, as we'll see. And so it was Cyrus who founded the Occumented Empire, the the Persian Empire, which ruled ultimately for about 200 years until Alexander the Great conquered Persia in 330 B.C. And so during that 200-year period of Persian rule, King Ahasuerus, he's the lead character in uh, chapter one of our story today, he was the fourth king of the Persian dynasty between the time of Cyrus the Great and Alexander the Great. He was better known in the Greek as Xerxes the First or Xerxes the Great so apparently everybody was great and he ruled from 486 to 464 BC during the time of Esther while some of the Jews uh, had returned to Jerusalem And, and so That's not only a bit of historical context for the story and an introduction to the Persian king at the center of the narrative today, but it also highlights the fact that the Jews in this story were born into exile. Because even though they were given the choice to leave if they wanted to earlier, many didn't. And so when Esther was born, she was born into exile as it was close to almost 100 years or so earlier before her birth, when the Jews were taken captive uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. So with that in mind, let's keep the story, start the story, then we'll read the first four verses. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. That's a party. King Ahasuerus ruled over the land from ancient India, it says, which was actually the land around Uh, the Indus Valley, which is present-day Pakistan, all the way down to ancient Ethiopia, which is the land just south of Egypt, which is present-day Sudan. So uh, this is a massive territory, and the king sat on his throne in Susa, one of the four capital cities of Persia, which is the modern-day city of Shush in uh, southwestern Iran. And the Persian kings, along with their Royal court would typically only winter in Susa because it was unbearably hot there in the summertime. And so Ahasuerus decides to spend the winter there preparing for his invasion of Greece, which is known today as the Battle of Thermopylae, which was coming, and where the Persians ultimately failed to conquer the Greeks. And so the point is, this massive six-month-long party... Thrown by the Persian king in Susa was not just a way of uh, occupying their time uh, during a long winter or just to thank his loyal supporters because he was a really nice guy. This epic party served a very strategic purpose for the king. He was attempting to build support for this coming invasion, which is why all of the military and key leaders were there at this celebration. Okay, Ahasuerus was, uh, had already put down... Uh, Two different rebellions, both in Egypt and Babylon, in the first three years of his reign. So you'd better be uh, believe that he wanted to be certain that he had the loyalties of his military and key leaders before he launched another major offensive into Greece. And so Herodotus, the historian, records a speech uh, given by the king. It's fascinating, where he promises to richly reward the leaders and armies who come to him, the most prepared And equipped for battle. And so verse 4 in our text says that he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So he throws this massive party to show off all of his riches in order to prove to everyone that was there that he could make good on his promise to extravagantly reward those who supported him. So the king has an agenda here. And the success of it all hinges on his ability to present himself in a positive light to the most important leaders and militaries within his kingdom. Okay, So losing face was definitely not on the king's agenda for this party. He desperately needed to impress everyone who was participating. So he pulls out all of the stops. Let's keep reading verses 5 through 9. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the Citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus." So again, this was the epitome of opulence, right? And for seven days at the end of the the six-month-long celebration, the king holds a feast in the court of his palace. And the custom at such celebrations was for everyone to drink only when the king drank. But Ahasuerus suspends that tradition for this feast so that everyone can drink as much and as often as they want to to ensure that everyone is having a great time. And also breaking with traditional Persian practice the queen was holding a separate feast for the women uh, probably because of the sheer size of this party there wasn't likely enough room uh, in the king's court for everyone and so the king is doing everything that he can to impress he spared no expense and held nothing back to save one thing there was there was one more prized possession the most Prized possession that he had yet to show off. One more splendid belonging to impress all of his guests, and he was saving the best for last. It was his greatest asset yet, or so he thought. Let's continue reading verses 10 through 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass. Just for the record, if my name was Carcass. I would be down at the courthouse getting that changed. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ah. I mean, it's bad enough that you have to be a eunuch, but to be a eunuch with the name Carcass, okay, I'm sorry. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before uh, the king with the royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at, but Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So the plot thickens as the king describes, uh, decides to show off his most prized uh, possession. He wants to impress everyone, and he sees her as a piece of property. With, it's his right to show her off in his mind. It's the very definition of a trophy wife. Let me summons my wife so I can parade her around before a horde of drunken men at my biggest party to impress them with her beauty, this possession of mine. Isn't it any wonder that she refuses to do so? Apparently it is to him because he's furious. All of the preparation, all of the expense, all of the the pomp and grandeur of his royal court months of decadent celebration. He has shown off everything that he can possibly think of. The king is hitting it out of the park with his guests, and then this happens. His own wife shuts him down in front of everyone that he's so desperate to impress. It's more than an embarrassment for the king. In fact, this is a real problem because all of this effort and time and expense has been expended, to make an impression on these key people, to show them the king's seemingly endless resources and power and authority. And yet, all that it takes to wreck the entire plan is his wife refusing to play along. And so knowing that he must do something decisive in order to try and save face with all of these people, the king calls his official advisors together. These were men who were versed in the law. And to be honest, I can kind of relate uh, with King Ahasuerus here. When my wife disagrees with me, I feel like I need a team of lawyers to help defend my point, which wouldn't work because I'm wrong all the time anyway. But uh, that's what he's doing. He's gathering all of these legal experts to help him solve his problem. Let's finish reading through the chapter, verses 13 through 22. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men next to him being Karshana, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persian media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of the king, Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. And then Memukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king is Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. That's a pretty big statement. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. You talk about paranoia. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Talk about insecurity. She, when when a royal decree was written, it could not be repealed. Verse 20, when it describes the decree made by the king in the original Hebrew, that is the word pithcom. It's a Persian word that refers to a judicial sentence. So this wasn't merely new information being offered to the people from the king's court. This was a legal action that was irrevocable as described in verse 19. In other words, there was a finality to this order given by the king that first of all, Vashti was never again to come before the king, which interestingly is a bit of a paradox that her punishment for refusing to come before the king was that she was not allowed to come before the king. But the fact that this royal order was also permanent means this was also effectively a legal divorce in the end of Vashti's queenship, which was intended uh, to send a message to all of the women throughout this vast kingdom, uh, the majority of the known world at the time, that you had better honor your husbands. And so the king is then left to find a new queen. And so as interesting as all of this may be, the real question when we read this first chapter is what bearing does any of this have on God's people, right? Who cares about a pagan king's divorce? He's going to marry someone else and everything just keeps going. For the Jews, I doubt they were waiting with bated breath to see what would happen next, right? When, when there's a scandal in the White House the, with presidents and wives and mistresses, it may make for interesting headlines, but it doesn't affect the quality of our lives. We don't lose our jobs because of it. Our churches are not shut down. I don't, I don't think a lot of people outside of those who are immediately involved are losing sleep over what happens in the marriages of our government leaders. And this particular generation of Jews in our story was far removed from the days of old. The glory days of Israel's power and obvious proximity to God at the time. Okay, this particular generation of God's people were living in a pagan society. They were born into it. It's all that they've ever known. In fact, when given the opportunity to go back to their homeland, most of them don't. So I don't think they were very shaken by these events in the royal court, at least not yet. And they they certainly could not see the sovereign hand of God at work on their behalf through these events at this point. They were oblivious to all that he was actually doing for them through these circumstances that must have seemed so far removed from their daily lives. To these Jews born and raised in exile in a secular culture that did not even recognize their God, I have to believe that for them, what was happening in King Ahasuerus' court must have felt very far removed and utterly unrelated to any possibility of God moving in their lives. However, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We do not know and cannot possibly know all that God is doing in our lives and on our behalf at any given moment in time, which is why in Psalm 37 David says, "...fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good." Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. I love those last seven words. Trust in Him and He will act in other words when you find yourself surrounded by unbelievers living in a culture where people neither understand nor want to understand your faith and in your current circumstances you feel an eternity away from God when he seems so far removed from you and your daily life trust in him continue to do his work Befriend faithfulness. Stay committed. Stay faithful to Him. And He will act. Because God is not far from us. God is not far from us. And not only is He not far from us, He's always working on our behalf because His Word promises us that when we commit our ways to Him, when we trust in Him, he will act. Okay, this, this entire set of circumstances that is unfolding in the royal court will have profound life and death ramifications for God's people in the very near future as we'll see in the coming weeks. And yet, right now, they don't have a clue. Nothing could seem farther from relevant to their lives or have anything to do with God being near them or working on their behalf than the fact that the king's marriage happens to be falling apart. It may be scandalous, but what does it have to do with the God of Israel working for the salvation of his people? And yet that's exactly what was happening. God's hand was fast at work on behalf of his people in the most unlikely set of circumstances God was not far from them then and he is not far from us today he is always he is always working on our behalf in Philippians 2 12 through 15 Paul writes to the church my beloved as you have always obeyed so now In other words, no matter how bad your situation may appear to be, no matter who you're surrounded by, don't lose heart. Don't grumble. Don't complain. I know you're living in a secular society where there is evil in the world that is conspiring against you, but God is working in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So commit your ways to Him, trust in Him, even when He seems far from you, and He will act, which is wonderful. And yet, somewhere along the way, we got the idea that our proximity to God is somehow reflected in the favorability of our circumstances meaning the more favorable our circumstances are, the the better off that our circumstances appear to be, the closer to God that we must be. That perspective is not borne out in the pages of Scripture or in the lives of believers from those first followers of God right up to today. And yet it is very common for Christians who find themselves in difficult circumstances to ask, God, where are you? Because there's an assumption in our Western church culture that if you're in a tough situation in life when nothing seems to be working out in your favor, that somehow that must mean you've done something wrong and now God is not working on your behalf. That God has somehow left you. Now listen, it is true that disobedience to the will of God affects our relationship with God. That is true. There is a body of Scripture that teaches us that when there are active patterns of disobedience in our lives, which is sin, that there can be consequences that follow, not the least of which is God sometimes not even hearing our prayers. In uh, John 9, 31, a blind man healed by Jesus proclaims to the religious Jews who are questioning him, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And the Jews understood that already. Isaiah 59, uh, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. And yet when we are in God's will, John assures us in 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he what? He hears us. So disobedience to God leads us outside of his will and sometimes into difficult circumstances, which is why James said to Christians, confess your sins to one another And pray for one another that you may be healed. James 5.16. Peter wrote, To Christians, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. 1 Peter 3.7. There are plenty of other examples in Scripture where believers are taught to practice confession and repentance with the resulting effects of that confession and repentance described as well. Uh, In addition to these verses, uh, Hebrews uh, 12, Revelation 2, there are other places uh, that address the need for believers to confess and repent when we sin. And by the way, it's not that we need to get saved over and over and over and over again, okay? Christ's work on the cross is a completed work. So He doesn't have to go back to the cross every time we sin. He did that once. He paid for it all. So that work is a finished work. 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul said, In Christ God was reconciled, to, uh, reconciled the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So His work that atoned for our sin is finished. It's completed. Our work... However, which is to be obedient to his will is never finished, this side of heaven. Which again is why Paul says to obey God as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling in Philippians 2. So it's not that our work in being obedient to God is what saves us. It is his work alone that saves us. Our work ensures that our relationship with him and our communication with him remains unfettered unobstructed. So John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of the work that he did on the cross. Okay, so his work is a completed work, but we're still commanded by God to confess our sins and be obedient to his will. And so our disobedience to God which is clearly outside of His will for us, directly affects our relationship with Him. And so when people come to me and want to know why God feels far from them, why their prayers don't seem to, to be doing much, the first question I ask is, is there any unconfessed sin in your life? Or uh, are you living in disobedience to His will in any area of your life? Because if you are, then let's deal with that first and make sure you're not outside of His will for your life. Let's make sure that your prayers are not being hindered. Your relationship is not being fettered by our own disobedience, right? That's that's why in the second half of uh, James 5.16 that we read earlier, James says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. He doesn't say the prayer of a disobedient person, the prayer of a lukewarm person, the prayer of a a sort of sincere person, person the prayer of a well-meaning person the prayer of a cultural christian he says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working so it's important when god feels far from us that we examine our own hearts first and answer that question with brutal honesty i do it all the time and then we deal with any unconfessed sin if there is any uh, through confession and repentance we deal with that however if the answer to that question is no there's no hidden or unconfessed sin in my life right now then the next question I ask is then why do you feel that God is far from you and in nearly every single instance the person will then begin describing some set of unfavorable circumstances that they're experiencing as if the favorability of our circumstances is somehow a litmus test in determining our proximity to God. Listen, guys, we have to stop thinking like that because it's not true. The Apostle Paul experienced some of the most difficult and disheartening circumstances imaginable precisely when God was as close to him as he could possibly be. You see, the favorability of our circumstances has absolutely nothing to do with determining God's proximity to us. But we assume that He's far from us because we're going through a hard time. And yes, sometimes there's tremendous difficulty in our lives. But God is not far from us. Just because life isn't working out how we wanted it to or thought that it would, it doesn't mean that He's far from us. We'll see in the next few weeks of this story that the scandal in the king's palace between him and his wife had God's sovereign and invisible fingerprints all over it. We'll also see how the entire story of Esther points directly to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ, our salvation and their salvation, but the Jews couldn't see it. They were living in exile in a foreign country under pagan rulers who were squandering the nation's resources and committing every vulgar and dishonoring offense against each other right there inside the king's own court. In fact, it sounds vaguely familiar, doesn't it? And yet, while all of that nonsense was going on, God was fast at work for his people because he's never idle and he is always sovereign. So he was using these sinful actions of pagan people to bring about a glorious result for his children, which they couldn't possibly see coming, particularly in the way that God was making it happen. To them, it was just another day in exile, but God was busy working all things together for good for those who were called according to his purpose, okay? the favorability of our circumstances or the severity of our circumstances for that matter is not the measuring stick for how close or how far God is to us because the Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. Our circumstances might be really difficult and you know the world is sometimes all too happy to tell you why. In fact, sometimes your best friends are all too happy to tell you why your life isn't working out the way that you wanted it to. Just ask Job about that. Sometimes people love to tell you what you're doing wrong and why God is not blessing you when what we should be doing is putting our arms around each other and saying, I don't know why things aren't working out the way that you want to either, but I am not leaving your side until we bombard heaven with enough prayers to either get some answers or get some peace. Because the reality is Your circumstances have nothing to do with God's proximity to you, but they have everything to do with God's plan for your life, which is a good plan. It's a good plan to bless you, to love you, to strengthen you, to mature you, to shape you, to to work through you, and to give you life in abundance, We may not see it today. It it may be well in the future before we can look back and understand how he was working on our behalf during that really tough time in life. But listen, there's one truth that you can take to the bank every time your life becomes difficult or certain. Every time the Lord is near to all who call on him. And God is not far from us. fact he is fast at work on our behalf so don't despair rather commit your way to the lord trust in him and he will act because he's closer than you think let's pray